All right. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Varsha Kudavari. Bayer, sorry, a senior research analyst at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, join us to discuss understanding Yemen's civil war. Ms. Kudavere will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Ms. Tharsha Kudavere. Thank you so much for that introduction and thank you all for being with me today on this cloudy Friday afternoon. I'm delighted to be able to join the Middle East Forum and uh, speak about the war in Yemen, which um, as of March uh, of this year is now in its sixth year with no resolution in sight, unfortunately. But I'll start speaking about the nature of what led to the Saudi-led intervention. And I'll wrap up by looking at where the war is now and what the Biden administration's policies are towards uh, Yemen and the Houthis and the Saudis. So Saudi Arabia intervened militarily to assist the government of Yemeni President Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi in March 2015, after the Houthi rebels took over the Yemeni capital of Sana'a. The Houthis had actually fought for years with Hadi's predecessor, Ali Abdullah Saleh, who was forced to step down uh, in uh, 2011 after Yemen's Arab Spring and Hadi took power. But as the Houthis consolidated their control over the capital, of Sana'a in early 2015, Hadi actually fled to Aden in southern Yemen, and from there he went to, to Riyadh. Uh, the, the reason that Saudi Arabia, along with other Gulf and Middle Eastern states, gave for the intervention was to restore the, um, the government of, of Yemen, Hadi's government. But Saudi Arabia has always seen Yemen as a domestic problem, and I think that's uh, a point worth uh, um, discussing and, and, and shedding light upon. The two countries share a very long border. At parts, they are porous. Uh, founding King Abdelaziz actually, anecdotally, is uh, alleged to have said, keep Yemen weak when he was on his deathbed to his younger sons, which shows the importance that Yemen has to domestic Saudi policymaking and thinking that Abdelaziz himself was said to have uttered those as amongst his last words. Um, Saudi Arabia has been concerned about the Houthis developing into a permanent foothold of Iran on its southern border, so morphing into a uh, Hezbollah in the Gulf, if you will. That has been Saudi Arabia's key fear and many of the Gulf states' key fear from the start of this intervention. And Iran, as we know, has been aiding the Houthis. They have been, there are reports of Hezbollah fighters having been deployed to the Houthis to assist them in training. We know that caches of Iranian arms shipments are periodically discovered, um, and sometimes interdicted, sometimes not. Most recently, there was an interdiction of a cache of, of thousands of offensive assault weapons that uh, was on its way to Yemen. So Iran has really been able to bleed Saudi Arabia, quite literally, in both in terms of, of uh, manpower and treasure with their low-grade investment in the Houthis. And by some accounts, Saudi Arabia has been spending $200 million a day on this war in Yemen. And of course, we know that Saudi Arabia famously told the Obama administration that the offensive would take about six weeks. And six years later, here we still are. And the Saudis are unable to extricate themselves from Yemen, but it's increasingly clear that they want to and that they're very eager to seek an off-ramp 
from this conflict, which has done severe damage to Saudi Arabia's reputation and definitely to Saudi Arabia's standing in Washington, especially on Capitol Hill. Uh, the Hadi government, after six years of war, still remains in exile, is very weak, systematic, um, systemic endemic corruption, and it's still a government from exile. They're not able to really exert that much control. Uh, Saudi Arabia's poor targeting practices have resulted in huge civilian casualties. I think amongst the more horrific instances were a wedding, a funeral, and a school in terms of what Saudi, uh, in terms of the um, civilian casualties of Saudi Arabia's poor targeting record. And as I mentioned earlier, Iran has been able to exploit all this as a low cost way of threatening Saudi Arabia. Yemen has been completely broken. The infrastructure is shattered. There were cholera epidemics in the country even before the arrival of COVID-19. There was also famine, <clears throat> excuse me, in parts of the country. The, um, and I do believe as of most recently, the world, um, the UN had said that Yemen is on the cusp of another famine. Um, so by some metrics, by those metrics that I just gave out, the war has not been a resounding success. If we're going to assess what the initial goals were, restore the Hadi government, and instead what you have now is a deeply fractured Yemen between the North and the South. And you actually have the Houthis now in control of more territory than they were in 2014, 2015 when this conflict started. But by other metrics, you can say that the intervention has borne fruit and it has achieved some success. For most among them, the intervention has uh, has led to the to the to exposing the cruelty of the Houthis. The Houthis are not innocent in this fight. They're complicit in a host of <clears throat> excuse me of atrocious activities. They have used child soldiers. They have used human shields. They continue to steal aid from starving Yemeni people, and they continue to blockade and obfuscate attempts at negotiations at every possible turn. And they've also tortured activists and dissidents and women's rights activists. And the list really does go on and on in terms of the Houthis' humanitarian crimes. It's also, the war has also worked to expose Iran's meddling in the region and the extent to which Iran's proxies are seeking to, um, to bleed the Gulf states, specifically Iran's, our tribal Saudi Arabia. Iran's, um, entre Iran's entrenchment of its support to the Houthis has just been laid to light more and more as the war has gone on. That brings me to talk briefly about where the war stands now, six years into it. Most recently in March, Saudi Arabia offered a very comprehensive ceasefire plan to the conflict. The plan envisioned reopening Sana'a airport, allowing food and fuel imports through Hudaydah port, which the Saudis had been blockading for a while. And that would also include depositing tax revenues um, from the port at the central, the bank of the uh, central, excuse me, the central bank branch in Hudaydah and restarting political negotiations. It is a significant and comprehensive offer, but the Houthis turned it down. The Houthis maintain that they want a separate sequencing than what the Saudis are offering. So they maintain that they want Saudi Arabia to lift the blockade first on the port and the airport before the Houthis take any reciprocal steps. And this is not a new demand. This has been something the Houthis have demanded on and off throughout the conflict. The Houthis are also prioritizing their military offensive in Me'rib and trying to hold on to their control in other parts of North Yemen. Me'rib remains the last government stronghold in Northern Yemen. 
the Houthis um, even refer to this battle to take control of Ma'rib in religious terms. The Houthi spokesman has called Ma'rib the gate to Jerusalem, for example. So they're painting this battle with overt religious symbolism. And symbolically, it would be a blow if the Houthis were to take Ma'rib because that, as I mentioned, is the last government stronghold in North Yemen. So the Houthis seem to think that if they're able to seize control of this territory, it would significantly strengthen and embolden their hand going into future negotiations. And as a result, they're prioritizing continuing this conflict, even though the humanitarian cost of that will be rather disastrous, rather than engage with negotiations efforts. And then that brings me to um, one other thing I'll say about the Houthis' uh, recent uh, activities too. As we've seen in the last two months, they have drastically um, increased the barrage of missiles that they're sending into Saudi Arabia as a way of further pressing their advantage and, and stoking their leverage. The last point I'll talk about briefly is the Biden administration's policy, as I had mentioned. So the Trump administration designated the Houthis in its, in its final days. The Biden administration did uh, revoke that designation of the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization. And the revoking the designation does have valid grounds. That designation does make it much harder <clears throat> for humanitarian groups to operate in the country. And something like 80% of Yemenis need food aid in order to, to just live and, and survive. And when you look at those stats and when you look at what this designation would do, it would create a chilling effect on the ground where a lot of aid agencies might just not even want to engage in the work for fear of running afoul of US sanctions or US law. So there are valid reasons for the administration to have decided to revoke that last minute designation on the Houthis, but that did remove the US's source of leverage over the Houthis. And the de facto result is that US leverage on the Houthis is very limited now. And the Houthis are demonstrating that. They are, they're aware of this dynamic and they intend to exploit it. For example, just in recent weeks, the Houthis snubbed a meeting with uh, Martin Griffiths, the UN Special Envoy for Yemen, uh, while, while Griffiths was in the region. At the same time that uh, Tim Lenderking, the US's Special Envoy for Yemen, was also in the region. And another example of the Houthis continuing to press their leverage, and, and I'll end my overview of the conflict here, is um, the Houthis continued obstruction and obfuscation over the status of the FSO of Safar, which is a ticking time bomb, really, in the middle of the Red Sea. And the Houthis are, again, using their access to that as leverage to get what they want and, and get the solution and the outcomes that they're leaning towards. So I'll stop with my overview there, and I look forward to welcoming all of your questions. All right, thank you so much. We have a few questions coming in. The first one is, will last week's seizure of weapons in the Gulf of Aden have any real effect on the war in Yemen? I think it goes to show what I had mentioned earlier. I, I brought this up, a recent cache had been, um, had been interdicted. It goes to show that Iran's support for the Houthis continues. I would say it even continues kind of brazenly. Here you have an administration that has made a good faith attempt to want to restore diplomacy with Iran, and it hasn't made any, um, it hasn't uh, made, um, it hasn't, it, it has very openly committed to wanting to return to some sort of nuclear deal with Iran, but Having taken that, Iran is continuing to exploit all of its proxies in the region where it can to extract material costs on its enemies in the region. So in terms of is it going to have an impact on the war in Yemen, absolutely. I would say that this is just going to continue. And as long as Houthi support, uh, excuse me, Iranian support to the Houthis continues, as Houthis will have a, some sort of a lifeline that they can rely upon to continue extracting concessions of their own. 
Thank you. My apologies. That was from Sue, Bob and Sue Radis. And the follow-up question to that is what percentage of weapons smuggled into Yemen does this seizure represent? And is there any estimated dollar value on this? I do not know the statistics to that off the top of my head. I'm sorry, but happy to look into that at a later date. Prom. And from David Levine, uh, why isn't the danger on international shipping to the Houthis takeover in the Red Sea entrance stressed? Uh, with the pro-Iranian Houthis on one side and the Somali pilot pirates on the other, how does international shipping, how is international shipping not threatened? Well, international shipping is threatened, and that's exactly why um, President Obama six years ago did engage U.S. assistance and enlist U.S. assistance in this war. The Bab el-Mandeb Strait is one of the world's three major maritime choke points. I think the other two, if I'm right, are Strait of Hormuz and uh, the Straits of Malacca. So this is a key um, a key lane to maritime security. And I would take a step back from just looking at it at the, from, the, from the, the view of Yemen and the Houthis and say, this is, this is why the Middle East matters still. I think we sort of have this debate in Washington of uh, maybe we are, you know, the, the Middle East era is over, it's time to pivot to, I hate using that phrase to Asia, but it's time to look at other threats. Great power competition is coming back, but the Middle East is going to be a, a place where great power competition plays out. And it does host this very vital shipping lane. And something like two thirds of seaborne oil traffic does go through this lane. This is why countering Iran in the region needs to remain a super high priority. The Houthis are able to use their strategic position. Iran is able to then exploit the Houthis and then create these security risks that threaten global shipping and global trade. Thank you. So this question is from Arnold. Uh, on that topic, geopolitically speaking, how do you think that, do you think that whoever controls Yemen also can control shipping traffic in the Red Sea? And is this Iran's objective? <clears throat> that is a very interesting question. I'm not so certain about the control element of it. I think it's, um, I don't think any, let me put it this way, even with looking at great car, great power competition, excuse me, for example, I, I don't think any country out there would prefer any other entity to be controlling the shipping lanes. So I kind of see that as a different question. I think even with this, um, the return of great power competition between US, Russia and China, it's all because um, everybody wants to maintain their access to these strategic choke points. So ultimately, what is Iran's end goal with Yemen? Iran seeks to bleed its enemies. That's pretty much what it is. It's doing the same tactic throughout. You've seen how they've cultivated and fostered a network of Iraqi militias. You've seen how they've entrenched Hezbollah to be a permanent or semi-permanent feature in the, in the landscape of Lebanese politics. And that's exactly what they're seeking to do with the Houthis in Yemen also. I think there's an argument to be made that the Houthis are independent of Iran. They are not as co-opted into Iran's vision, into Iran's structure, as I think maybe even some Iranian officials would like to think it is. Um, I think there's an element of the Houthis look, um, sort of mutually cooperating and co-opting Iran and vice versa. But the Houthis represent a low cost way, as I said earlier, of Iran to be able to bleed Saudi Arabia and its enemies. If that figure of $200 million a day that Saudi Arabia is spending is um, 
is to be extrapolated for the entire course of the war. And we know that Iran's investment isn't all that much. I don't have dollar limits, but you can imagine that they are, you know, they're just sending advisors on the ground. They're helping them build missile technology and they're not investing, you know, an entire military, an entire nation's military into this conflict the way Saudi Arabia is. So Iran's end goal in the region is to be able to use all of these um, proxies to their advantage for their revisionist goal. Thank you. From Len Levin, uh, is the conflict in Yemen a major result of a religious dispute between Shia and Sunni religious groups? That is a really interesting question. I would say less so. The Houthis, of course, are very problematic, very scary. Some of the, the um, when they take over territory, they have imposed draconian uh, Wahhabi style laws and and, uh, and uh, public codes there governing things like how women can dress. I mean, in some places they even, um, I remember a story, I, can, I can't remember the province that this happened in, but, but when they took over the Houthis tried to block access to birth control for women. So they definitely come at this with this sort of extremist totalitarian religious view. But that's what the Houthis are bringing to, their con to the conflict. And if we look at the Houthis, um, motto, if you will, it's like death to America, curse Israel, death to the Jews, victory to Islam, um, missing a couple other phrases, but I've said enough for you to get the gist. I think that's where the Houthis come from. I'm not so certain that the rest of Yemeni society would fall into that Sunni versus Shia battle. But of course, if you look at it from the geopolitical perspective and you take a step back, then but there is the argument people have made it that it's you know, um, uh, Iran and the Shias versus Saudi Arabia and the Sunni-led bloc. So, I mean, that's, that's a dynamic that is interesting to consider for sure. Thank you. From Raymond Stock, a uh, very interesting presentation. Thank you. Uh, what is the situation with the Sunni Islamic, Islamist groups such as the Muslim Brotherhood and IS and Al-Qaeda in Yemen? And what is their relationship with the various factions within the country? Yeah, that's a really good question. The Houthis do have some links. Uh, the Yemeni government has some links with the Muslim Brotherhood. And definitely in the earlier stages of the war, this was um, the, the conflict was allowing uh, Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula to thrive. They established the Emirate in Mukalla. That is one aspect where the US continues to maintain a presence. So even after uh, the Biden administration's announcement that the US is ending offensive, op offensive support to the war in Yemen, which <clears throat> I think is kind of broadly defined, um, they are not pulling back from counterterrorism and counterintelligence operations. So I think that's, I bring that point up to say that the, um, any, in any vacuum, there's the ability for terrorist groups to resurge, to reemerge and to thrive. So I think there's a good awareness on all sides that there's almost two parallel battles in Yemen. One's obviously what's going on with the Houthis, Saudi Arabia and Iran, but then the other is the implications that this could have on um, uh, for other extremist groups in the region. And it makes it a very complicated situation when you are trying to fight two battles at the same time. Understood, thank you. So from Robert Slater, if Yemen were a true democracy, would the Houthis be in control? That is an interesting question. I'm not, I'm not certain. I uh, don't think we've ever seen Yemen be a true democracy. So um, part of it is, is just not having a precedent to go off of. I don't think that, I mean, the Houthis are not great people. Like, I, I want to go back to their war crimes. They are not good to their fellow, um, their fellow Yemenis. I don't think that there's a lot of 
of um, uh, of love harbored amongst Yemenis. And certainly, when you look at when you look at Yemen itself, you look at how this used to be two countries. It reunited in the '90s. Those divisions didn't went away. Didn't go away. It's a very um, tribalistic society still. I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of different factors on the ground. I'm not a, a, an expert of, of Yemen itself. It is a fascinating country. I could spend all day looking at Yemeni society, politics, tribal um, uh, power, uh, power arrangements and all of that. I look at the war more from the geopolitical perspective. So I would say that it's a very interesting question and certainly something of a hypothetical to think about. Thank you. Uh, again, from Arnold, do you see a danger of Iran extending its influence from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea and through Syria and Lebanon so as to surround Saudi Arabia, Israel, and Jordan? That's exactly what it's trying to do. Right? I mean, we talked about the Shia crescent that Iran had been building toward, um, through uh, Syria and Lebanon, and then the Houthis are also another opportunistic way for them to extend their influence to the other side. It is all about, again, their revanchist goals, and it is all about their hegemonic ambitions in the region. And all of these different, um, all of these different, like Syria and Lebanon and Yemen, they're all pressure points that Iran can leverage. They are all, um, uh, they can tap into disaffected segments of society and polity in all of these countries in order to um, better extend their leverage and encircle Saudi Arabia. So do you think that the US should be helping out Saudi Arabia or hindering them a bit in the fight of the Houthis? Well, I think that depends on, so we gotta take a step back and look at what is the goal here. There is no military solution. So whatever US assistance is given, it will not help to create a military solution. That's what the Houthis think can happen. They think that they can win the war on military terms, but that is just not possible. And it's something that analysts have been saying since the war began is that there is no military solution to this. I think that the best role forward for the US is to maintain both a carrot and a stick approach. At the moment, I do believe we have surrendered all of our sticks. Again, there's valid reason to delist the Houthis from humanitarian perspectives, but the de facto result is that we don't have a whole lot of leverage that we can use against the Houthis as a result. And it's a very difficult, tricky situation for our policymakers to be in right now. But I think the US has done a good job of um, definitely continuing support with, uh, it was the UAE that was mostly leading a lot of the counterterrorism operations. The US has done a good job of continuing and maintaining support for that. Um, the US has, has tried to help Saudi targeting where it can. So it has offered logistical and training courses to get Saudi capacity further up. And so I think the US is, has, has played the best role that it can thus far. Again, the question is just what other sticks can we, can we put into our arsenal to try to get um, more of a political solution, try to get more momentum behind a political solution, because we really are at an inflection point right now. We have been since COVID started. Saudi Arabia is eager to wind down this war. It's eager to seek an off-ramp. It knows that it has just, um, it wants to staunch the bleeding, basically, both in terms of what it's doing to its international reputation, but also the fleecing it's getting in U.S. domestic politics with the growing cadre of voices 
um, that are insistent that Saudi relations be broken with Saudi Arabia, that Mohammed bin Salman become persona non grata, et cetera. So they are eager to repair the damage. At the same time, they have very real and valid security concerns in Yemen with the Houthis that I think sometimes other sides of US policymakers do not fully um, discuss in the public sphere. And then you've got, um, uh, you've got the US's own interests too, to go back to the shipping question that somebody had asked earlier. I and mean, this is a key part of the world, it's a key corridor for global trade. So you've got all of these different dynamics in the mix. And I think it's been, um, the US has done a good job of giving support to its allies, but also continuing to demand better prosecution of the war from Saudi Arabia and giving its assistance where it can. Where we really hit a wall is with the Houthis because we, we don't have leverage over them to get them to do something, to get them to come to the table. But it's been clear since April 2020 when Saudi Arabia began implementing these unilateral ceasefires that the Houthis rejected, literally shot up, um, that the US and Saudi Arabia are, are more probably more aligned now than they have been at previous stages of the war in terms of seeking a diplomatic solution. Fantastic, thank you. Is, uh, this is from J.R. Pride. Uh, is Yemen still divided north and south and how does this influence the war? Yes, it is, but um, I would say it's more of maybe a societal or a de facto division. I mean, certainly you had um, a few years uh, earlier into the war, you had these STC, Southern Transitional Council, also known as the Hidak Movement. They were very aligned with the UAE. I, um, I'm not aware of what the STC, uh, the, there was a Riyadh agreement, I remember from a couple of years ago, maybe a year ago, um, where essentially Saudi Arabia sought to smooth some tensions between its domestic partners, so the Southerners and then other uh, factions of its allies in Yemen. Like I said, I do not follow um, the granular level of the war because that is, in, that, that is, I think that is a career in and of itself. Yemen is an absolutely fascinating, fascinating place. But what I think is quite obvious is it's going to be pretty hard to stitch the country back together after six years of war that has destroyed infrastructure, facilities, families, and it has just really broken what was already um, a state with limited state capacity. So it's going to be quite hard to, to stitch it back together in some sort of cohesive, comprehensive way. Thank you. And this next question involves uh, does Israel have a reason to be more favorable to either side in the dispute in Yemen? And does Russia have any influence on or concern about the conflict in Yemen? As regards Israel, I mean, we are seeing some, an interesting time in the Middle East with the rise of the Abraham Accords. I certainly think Saudi Arabia supports the Abraham Accords. Otherwise, Bahrain would not have normalized. Bahrain tends to um, be the GCC state that serves as the bellwether for um, for, for the region. So I do think that there's tacit and implicit Saudi support for Israel, and definitely growing by the day. Even in public, Mohammed bin Salman has made statements where he has not shied away from embracing uh, Israel's role in the region as an economic powerhouse and from looking at how Saudi Arabia could tap into the, the startup nation model for its own economic diversification goals. So I think there's definitely that angle. I am less certain about Russia, although of course I think with the return of great power competition, that's why all of these states and these avenues are so important for us to continue being engaged in. Great power competition isn't gonna play out in the East or else it's gonna play out everywhere. It's gonna play out in all of our theaters and it's gonna play out in the Middle East, which is really, really, really important for a host of energy and commercial reasons. 
So um, Russia has significant interests in Libya. It's got significant interests in Syria. It's creating a pipeline. Um, sorry, it's creating a, 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 a transit network of pipelines um, throughout like Turkey. Uh, that is just seeking to entrench its status as a gas exporter and a gas supplier. So it's not a question we can sidestep around. And it just, again, to go back to, to what I had said earlier, this is why US engagement in the region is so important and has to continue. So six years later, is there anything that can be done to end this? I think it just depends on, comes down to the Houthis, truly. I, there was a time previously where I don't think you saw this level of uh, willingness to engage from Saudi Arabia, and then that has completely shifted. They're so eager to, to tamp the war down. That is a big shift in the dynamics of the conflict. But an equally bigger shift is also the Houthis' um, desire now to lock in military gains. I mean, they think that they have nothing to lose. They don't see any sources of leverage piled against them. And if they were to capture Madib, that would be, I mean, they look at Madib sort of as like their crown jewel. That would, to them, they think it would change the nature of the map and, and just give them a really good upper hand going into negotiations. So it comes back to what are our sources of leverage? And at this point, I'm, I'm not so sure. Understood. Well, thank you so much. In our last minute here, can you tell us where we can find some more of your work? Yeah, sure. So you can feel free to visit the FDD website. Um, you'll find all of my work there. I'm also on Twitter. It's just at Varsha Kodavayar, uh, first name, last name. And I sometimes uh, tweet about Yemen, increasingly more so now. But like I said, I, I cover the Gulf states specifically, so all six of the Gulf Cooperation Council. So my view of the war in Yemen is just influenced by my tiny perch of Gulf geopolitics and Saudi geopolitics. Um, but uh, just Yemen is, I think, I'll sign off by just saying this. I mean, Yemen is a beautiful country. It's such a historic country. And um, I, I fear losing it for a generation or more if we're not able to um, if we're not able to stop the war in its tracks it's already gone on for for six extremely long years okay, well thank you so much it comes with the close of our webinar i thank you again varsha for taking time to speak with us today my pleasure thank you all for having me and thank you for joining me today thank you for our viewers and listeners, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinars offering email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day. Thank you.